So the, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8 and verses 23 through 27. Five little verses. 73 words. That's all it is. And to me, it is a mind-blowing story. I want us, we're going to read it first, and then we're going to ask this question. What does this have to do with my life? Is it relevant to me? And what we're going to see at first, it's a story that happened long ago. It seems kind of, it's too, it's too good to be true kind of story. Sometimes when you read the gospel stories, you almost read it like a mother goose tale. Like, really? Did that really happen? And if that happened, can that really happen to me? And so we're going to ask those questions. Um, if you have had to wrestle with tough things in the last two years, like maybe if you've been fearful of illness, struggled with loneliness, maybe some of you have fought depression, the blues of depression, just the news stories have a tendency. I think they're designed to make you be defeated. I really do. I think that's how they're designed to, say, give up and quit. If you have lost people you love, if you have argued with people you once thought were your friends over things that you have a different opinion on, or if you've wondered if God even cares, then this passage is exactly what you need. It's amazing. This has been my personal favorite story of Jesus and all the Gospels, and you'll see why. So if you can read along with me, it's Matthew chapter 8. 23 to 27, and it begins, and when he got into the boat, Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And that's the story. It is very straightforward. Jesus gets into the boat. The disciples join him. He falls asleep, a storm comes, they think they're going to die, they wake him up, he gets a little upset, he rebukes the storm, it quiets, and the disciples look at Jesus and find him more terrifying than the storm. It's an amazing story, but what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? Everything. Everything. The title of this is Under Dark Skies. And we're going to deal with what I'm going to call the six major soul-searching questions. These are the questions that are often unspoken, but you have them when you're facing the eye of the storm. These are the questions that arise in the human heart when the winds start blowing. I'll bet you these are the questions that people are asking Louisiana right now as they batten down the hatches and the eye is slowly bearing down. These are the questions of the heart. So here's my objective with this passage. Very simple. I want to let you in on my personal struggles, especially when life is hard. 
And hopefully you'll relate. And I think you will relate because you're probably just as fragile and broken human as I am. Actually, this past week I read this, um, I read this little article that said, what do congregations want in a pastor? And they said, you know what congregations want in pastors? They want a pastor who will help the church win in a world of religious competition. They want a pastor who leads strong. They want a pastor the way the Israelites wanted a king. And they're saying they get all of their leadership models from the world. They want a tough guy that will lead bravely. However, they often forget that pastors are followers too. I have found that Jesus wants all of us, pastors and people alike, to learn humility and to understand what childlike faith is all about. That, that's what this story is about. It's a humbling story, but it's meant to help us refocus not on the winds of the storm, but on the one who controls the storm. Because I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but I don't mind admitting that I need Jesus every single day of my life. I have no problem with that. I know that there are people that are strong and they can stand strong. Try standing in the eye of the hurricane right now that's buried down in Louisiana. Are you really that strong? Sometimes the world is like that. Sometimes you're, you're going to the hospital and you see people you love and you feel like that. I am, a, I am a leaning wall and a tottering fence and I have a feeling just one little blow of the wind will knock me down. That's what Psalm 62.3 says. So if you're like me and you're willing to admit you need a Savior, follow along with me as we go through this story. Last week, if you remember, Jesus invited people to follow him. The true disciples get in the boat. Those who are not stay far away on the sandy shores of the safe beach. But if you're really going to experience Christ, you've got to jump in the boat. And that's what happens in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I'll tell you, what I know about human beings, however, often before they jump in the boat, they want assurance. They want to ask this question. Before I get in the boat, will I be guaranteed safe passage? Because, you know, I really don't like danger. I want to be safe. Need to be guaranteed something before I get into this crazy journey with Christ. Who wants to join a movement that places their lives at risk? I want to have I want to have odds on my favor, at least better than 99.4% chance like it's fatal. Doesn't Jesus want our best at all times? Like a good parent, I don't want my children to face difficulty. Isn't God a good dad? I heard one preacher said, God's a good daddy. He'll never get mad at you. And he'll take good care of you. Really? Really? And so I think there's this unspoken belief that if I follow Jesus, I will be successful, happy, and getting everything I've ever wanted. If I follow Jesus, I should never be lonely. I should never have any reasons to doubt his goodness, and I'll never have to face the dark night of the soul. And if I do, why should I follow him? I thought he's supposed to take good care of me. When I first became lead pastor here and we were over in the other church, I was a little nervous about being a senior pastor, kind of scared about it. 
And so I decided to do my summer devotions on the book of John and the red letters. And so the red letters in a red letter version are the things Jesus specifically spoke. Even though God specifically spoke this whole thing, I just wanted to study the red letters. And in John chapter 1, verse 38, the very first thing Jesus says is this. The disciples, two disciples say, and they come up to him and they want to follow him. And Jesus turns around and he looks at him and he asks this question. What do you want? What do you want? In the ESV, it's, what are you seeking? I put it like this. Um, what do you want from me? How would you answer that? What do you expect from Jesus? What do you think he should give you in order for you to follow him? Oh, he should give me a spouse, two kids, and a half, and a dog that never pees on the carpet. That's what he should give me. He should give me a big house, right? He should give me a successful job that I really like. Isn't that his responsibility? You know what God should give me? Is a happy marriage. Shouldn't he? God should let my candidates win all the elections, have a pain-free life, harmony, maskless schools, that's what he should give me, and a COVID-free world. I'm going to get this fly right here. Got it! I hate that fly. Oh, God, you should give me the ability to get that fly. That's what he should give me. He should give me a ministry job where I preach great sermons and people love me. Good luck with that. And then, take it one step further, take it one step further, what if all your expectations are not met? Will you still get on the boat? What if you have to suffer? Will you still follow him wherever he leads you? This naturally leads to question two to me. Here's question two. I, it's actually taking it a step further. It's the same as one, but it makes it more biblical. Does not scripture itself promise me smooth sailing? Time and time again in the Bible, we find promise after promise. And it's almost like if I have faith and obedience, blessing will come should, right? Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Peace I leave with you. And of course, if you train up a child in the way he should go, he will not depart from it, right? 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So shouldn't I expect them to come through for me? Or how about Psalm 91? Take a look at Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is an exquisite passage. And it almost seems like life should be pain-free until you really get to what I think the thrust is. Take a look at it with me. Psalm 91, it's beautiful poetry. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. So he's going to take care of those things waiting to trap me. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings will, he, will you find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So he's, I'm a, like a little tiny bird underneath his mother's wing. He'll take care of me. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, 
nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Hmm. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. It won't? Are you sure? You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. But what if it does? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's a verse that was a predictive verse about Jesus when he was tempted by Satan to jump and Satan quoted this, but he will command his angels in verse 12 and they will bear you up. They won't let your foot strike against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. I'm not going to try that. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name, but I think this is the point. Verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. That's the point. Trouble does come. Trouble will come our way. The storms will blow. But he will be with me. And that's the whole point of what Matthew 8 is about. So let's go back there and let's just see how he's with us. It says in Matthew 8, verse 24, And behold, or suddenly... There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped. That means the waters were coming over and that boat was getting ready to sink in the Sea of Galilee. The storm was so bad that even Peter himself couldn't handle it. The question is, didn't Jesus know the storm was coming? And if he knows everything, why did he lead them into the storm? Or was this out of God's control? Which leads to actually question number three. When the storm comes, this is a very serious question. Will there be times when all hope seems lost? Like Jesus was caught off guard. The storm comes in suddenly. It comes in so fast and fierce that it just seems too overwhelming, not just for me, but it has to be, it's almost like God got caught off guard. Have you ever been in those situations where didn't God see this happen? When I look at Peter in the story, it's, I believe Peter was so terrified that he was at his wit's end to the degree that he had to wake Jesus up. He determined that there was no escape. There was no escape. And it must have been bad because Peter grew up on the Sea of Galilee. If anybody should not fear, surely it would be Peter. But Peter's like, we are going to drown. They're, all options are closed. Have you ever been in a situation where it feels like you're at your wit's end, God's caught off guard, and there's no way to get out of this disaster? You're not going to survive? Or the ones you love aren't going to make it? And deep in the bottom of your heart, you ask this question in a silent way. Is God really in control or is chaos? Did God not see COVID coming? Didn't he know about that Tennessee flood that was going to happen or the hurricane right now in Louisiana? Or what about the Taliban in Afghanistan? He had to have seen what was going on. 
Did he not know my sister Laura would never grow past the mental age of a six-month-old baby? Yesterday she went to the ICU, and she can't take care of herself. My mom's getting old. She can't take care of her. Doesn't God know? Can't God eradicate cancer? Can't he stop people from being raped or end abuse? And can't he just figure this mask stuff out once and for all so that we can be friends again? Why do we lose friendships so quick? Why is life hard? And why are there times when hope is hard to see behind the pounding rain in the dark black sky? Have you ever been there with David in Psalm 86, 1 and 2? And the NLT writes it like this. Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me. And he says this. Protect me because I'm devoted to you, God. I'm devoted to you. I'm giving my life for you. Save me, for I serve and trust you. You're my God, and you pray like that, and you're done praying, and it's still quiet. Or at the end of verse 24, it says here, but he was asleep. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I think this had to frustrate Peter. How could Jesus be sleeping in a storm? Water's coming up. Can you imagine Jesus' head on the pillow and water splash him in the face? He's still sleeping. Wake up! What in the world? Don't you feel the hail hitting you in the, the thunder clapping around you? Man, Jesus, what's going on? God, where are you? We're perishing. My loved one's dying. Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? And this leads us really to the question number four. It's the toughest question of all, but I think it's the most important. Is it a sin to doubt? The truth about this world is at times I won't have answers. I may never have answers. God may seem far away and hidden. The rain of life keeps falling heavy and hard. And my heart expects solutions. And when no solutions come, I start demanding answers. And when I start demanding answers and they don't come, I start getting mad. Have you ever been mad to the point where it's that person's fault? It's, uh, if they would have been there, you know whose fault it is? It's always their fault. The government. It's the government's fault. If my boss would have paid me more money, I wouldn't be in a situation I'm in. Or if God loved me, I would not have been in this pain. So these questions flood in like the tidal waters over the boat. They come in. And the question is, is it wrong to doubt? Is it wrong to raise questions and want answers? Was Peter wrong for waking Jesus? Or should he just sat there quietly, sitting in the rain, so Jesus' head's right there sleeping, and Peter just snuggle up next to him and just say, you know, with a southern accent, say it like this. You know, God's good all the time. And all the time, God is good. While the lightning's coming down. Or are we allowed to scream and say, wake up! Wake up! God! I need you! Doubt isn't sin. 
in and of itself. I should be able to be honest about the pain I'm experiencing in a storm. In fact, did you know God knows all your thoughts, so he knows that you're worried. But the danger, I think, is, is when my doubt casts judgment on the person of God. Job 40, verse 8, it's a very interesting verse. So Job had a horrible life, and he's speculating, and so God says, all right, Job, I got some questions for you. So in Job 40, verse 8, he said, Job, would you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be justified and seen right? In other words, he said, will you blame me to justify your pain? I think, and I had a, somebody debated me about this, I think Peter was walking awfully close to this line in verse 25. When he went up to Jesus, he said, save us, Lord, we're perishing. There's panic in his voice. Betrays a bit of doubt. I think that's why Jesus responds in verse 26, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Which brings us to the next question. Maybe the most important question of all. When the storm is raging and I'm at my wit's end, I see no options. What does strong faith look like? What is strong faith? How do we have strong faith when the world seems hopeless? I think it's implied by Jesus here. I think, number one, if you want to have strong faith, don't panic. In other words, don't give in to fear. Fear works like a chain reaction. There's two parts of it. First of all is the immediate happening causes my body to react. My senses kick in. Fight or flight begins happening. That's when I'm like, I got to do something. It's a natural reaction. The chemicals in your body wake you up to the danger. But it's part two that's the important part. When this kicks in, then I start going to analysis. I analyze two things. My memories of similar situations in the past, and then my imagination of what could happen in the future. That's how I analyze the situation. Panic sets in, and listen really close, panic sets in when your memory and your imagination forget God in the equation. Panic sets in when all you see is dark skies and death because you've ignored what God has already done for you and you lose faith in what he can do. You could say it like this. Well, I'll say it like this. Panic shows that you are not taking God's fatherly care seriously, which is the second part of strong faith. The second part of strong faith is you don't panic, but number two, don't blame God. Don't blame God. There's a hint that Peter's upset at Jesus for the possibility that drowning can happen. Some people say he's exercising childlike faith. There's a couple camps when you read the commentators. Some commentators say it's, he is actually upset at Jesus for sleeping. I've done that with God, honestly. So if that's true, I might be childlike faith. But there are times when things happen, you're like, I just don't understand God. I don't get it. I don't get it. We have to be very careful that we 
accuse him. That we are not taking his fatherly care seriously. And if God isn't going to take care of me, if I assume he's not taking care of me, I have to do something. But if I don't know what to do, here I am, left in despair. And you can't let the situation take you to despair. Strong faith, however, ends the way Psalm 13 does. Psalm 13 began where it says, Where are you, God? Will you forget me forever? Then he's working through it, and then he ends by saying, But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And the reason why is because you've been good to me. You have been good to me. So in other words, strong faith sees the situation, is alerted in the immediate, and realizes God's still on the throne and he's still for me. So calm down and don't trust. I got my dog, Raf, kind of gets a little crazy and Gio will go, calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down, and trust. Life is a marathon, not a sprint, and God is working. But you could say, even though, let's say the disciples did panic and they didn't necessarily approach Jesus, maybe in strong faith, they still went to him because he's the right source. And you can come to him any way you want because his mercy doesn't judge you in the way you approach him. It's deep, it's rich, it's wide. Even we don't exercise maybe strong faith. Watch what happens when he responds to his disciples' cry. I, this is amazing. We could ha- uh, this is one of those things. When I go to heaven, I think there's going to be a video room. And I'm going to say, can I watch that? I think, I'll, I want to see when the world's made. That would be incredible. But I want to watch this. Plug in a little, I don't know, I don't know if they'll have a little tiny recording up in heaven, but I'll plug this in and imagine it. So it says, and he said to them, why are you afraid of little faith? So he gets up, his fed was probably on the pillow, he gets up, he says, you guys, why, just don't be afraid. And then he probably wipes his eyes, slicks back his hairs, because it's probably still really wet, you know. And you've seen all those movies of Jesus, he has to have his hair slicked back. (laughs) Slicks back his hair. He stands up, probably goes to the bow of the boat, and he looks up at the sky, he goes, will you just shut up? That's probably what he said. But I know God's not allowed to say shut up, because you can't do that to your kids. He probably said, quiet! The waves are calm. The sun comes through. And he probably rubbed his eyes and went back to sleep. All right, now I can get some more sleep. But look what it says in verse 27. And the men marveled. And they said to one another, they're probably looking at each other going, who is this guy? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Which is question six. This is an amazing question. And you need to ask it. What do you do with your wonder? Do you wonder at God's greatness? Have you ever let yourself be amazed? Or do you think you deserve the kindness of God and yawn when he moves the mountains for you? Oh yeah, I deserve that. You do? 
I think, um, I think that may be one of the biggest sins of our generation is we're no longer grateful. We don't let His wonder sink in. We need to let it inform our memories for the future and increase our love and our respect for Jesus right now and say, what manner of man is my God? He's incredible and he's mine. He's mine. Do you, want, do you have a wonder list that you keep fresh in your mind? Do you share wonder stories and God sightings? It's my wife does this a lot. She sees God working and spots it out and points it out. My sister Gina does this. She's in, works in the jails in L.A. and she's telling me something happened two days ago where in the jails of L.A. they're actually letting everybody out because of COVID, but the bad guys, they stay in. So she goes in and does chapel for the bad guys. And she said she's walking through the hallways and they let this guy out to go to chapel. And she's in a hallway with this guy that had long gray hair, piercings everywhere, muscles that were seven times the size of a normal man. And he's kind of walking behind her, and she's like, this guy's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And they go into chapel, and she starts preaching, and he's kind of mad sitting there. <sighs> you know, and then after she's reading Scripture, he calms down, calms down, and then afterwards he goes, do you really believe this stuff? She said, yeah, I believe it. And she said, I think I do too. You know, like she said, Chris, it was a miracle. I thought this guy was a demon going to rip my head off. And all of a sudden, Scripture calmed him like a little tiny kitten, you know. That's a God sighting. I love when people rehearse wonder because it keeps the saving power of God fresh and alive. Question for you. Have you gotten over your salvation? And if you have, shame on you. Our problem is we're so prone to forget. We need to learn to stand in awe more often than we do. We get more excited about movie scenes than we do about people healed, friends interested in the gospel, bills paid, relationships restored, and a good meal served. We need to be like Bob Wiley. And what about Bob when he eats dinner? He's like, mmm, mmm, mmm. Oh, is that corn hand, Chuck? Oh, mmm. Like those meals you eat, have you ever been thankful? Could you imagine being in Afghanistan right now? Do you know how to appreciate and wonder? Three conclusions. Here's what I gleaned from the story I think can help all of us face the storms headed our way. I put it like this. I am convinced of three things from this little Five-verse story. Seventy-three words, that's all. Number one, I'm convinced God will not let you die before your time. He won't. He has days for you, things for you to accomplish, people to meet, insights to learn. God has you in the palm of his hand. Do you think he'll let you go? Peter thought they were going to drown. We're, we're, we're drowning. But how could Peter drown when Jesus knew he would be the person who started the church. Psalm 90, verse 17 is the prayer of continuance. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Yes, establish the work of our hands for us. It's something I'd pray all the time. God, I'm yours. I'm your work. Establish my life. 
and he will. Second thing I'd say is this. If you live in fear, let panic rule and bad memories cripple you and the lies of doom in the future stop you, you will not be truly alive. You will really not live. I once contemplated, do you think it's easier to die as a martyr or to live as a saint? I think it's easier to die as a martyr. Shoot me with one bullet in the head and I'm done. I don't have to live day by day by day in obedience and joy. If God has the days in his hands and has rescued us in the past, what are we so scared about when it comes to the future? Don't you think he'll come through? Third thing is this. I am convinced God's reputation matters more than my comfort. The reason he allows storms to brew is he wants to show off. He wants to rescue you when no one else can. When you have everything locked tight and secure, it's really a sign you're relying on yourself and you don't have room for God to work. Pastor Jared came into my office this week and said, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about leaving, kind of scared, but I'm also excited. Sometimes I'm nervous because I'm not sure I have what it takes, but I'm excited to see if I do have what it takes. And I think, honestly, God has what it takes. <laughs> God has what it takes. I, I have been convinced of this in the last year and a half. It's the word infragility. I've mentioned it a couple times. Infragility is opposite of fragility. Imagine I have a white porcelain little dolly here, and I poke it with my finger, and it crumbles. It's fragile. And I think we've raised our kids to be that white porcelain. We've got to protect these little poor little porcelain things. That's fragility. Infragility is lifting weights. When I lift weights... My muscles, they tear, but they actually form more muscle mass. So my body has been made to get stronger under duress, not weaker. And I think that's true of storms. Storms come so I will know that his strength is perfected in my weakness. I, like, even let's talk about this mask for kids. I'm not taking a debate either way. Some people want that pastor to be tough and make that decision for them. You're going to have to decide where you're at on that. But here's my question about wearing it. Do you ever teach your child to be strong through difficulty? I was talking to somebody with it. And, uh, you know, I understand. I understand all the debates on either side. But I'm thinking through, you know, when I was in fifth grade, my teacher was Sister Joan of Arc. I would much rather have to wear masks and face Sister Joan of Arc. Sister Joan of Arc would grab me by the ear every day if I didn't listen, and she'd drag me around. She'd hit me with that ruler, and I'd go, Dad, Sister Joan of Arc hit me with the ruler. He goes, that's good for you, son. You need to learn. <laughs> my, my problem is, what are we teaching our kids to be? Little porcelain dolls? <laughs> Or, Psalm 112 said, the man who fears God raises champions. The storm is meant to show us we need a Savior. And when the Savior shows up, nothing's impossible.